Good morning. Our reading today comes from Ephesians 5, 22 to 31, and in your pew Bibles, that is 978 to 979. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. A couple quick things before we start. Uh, First... If you're visiting today, thank you for putting up with our weirdness with these name tags. Uh, We call this Name Amnesty Sunday uh, because there's so many of us that are new to one another and we just want to take the anxiety out of like the hey hey you um, and just have the the name right there so we can call each other by name at least for one Sunday. So thanks for putting up with us in that. Hopefully it's helpful to you if you continue to come back to help you remember people's names. Uh, We're glad that you're here today. Another thing, uh, somebody... Uh, was teasing me a couple of weeks ago about how long I preach, um, and then I texted him after Justin finished last week, and I was like, look, you can, you can see how long a sermon can go, but I think after today, I might be saying, hold my sermon, Justin, because uh, uh, we might go a little long today. I'm going to talk fast. We've got a lot of ground to cover. As you probably noticed when you read the text with us, there has some potential to be some controversial topics that we will cover uh, this morning. So hopefully, if it is a little bit longer, it'll keep you engaged, uh, the the potential controversy. Uh, Glad that you're here to explore this text with us today. Um, In just about one generation, a significant portion of our culture has given up completely on this idea of marriage. In the last 30 years, uh, marriages have, uh, the, the rate of marriage has decreased by 40%. Uh, and just last year alone, almost 2 million people got divorced in the U.S. alone. Why is that? Is marriage old-fashioned? Is it out of date? Is it merely a tradition that has just been left behind? I think the best way for us as Christians to avoid being seduced into a thin, worldly, straight-up sad philosophy of marriage is to trace down the origin story of marriage, the origin story. So on May 21st, 1980, theater audiences' jaws dropped and a a collective gasp was let out all at once when Darth Vader told Luke Skywalker something about his origin story. Maybe some of you were there in 1980 for this. Now, I've gotten trouble up here before for telling secret developments in movies and sort of destroying the punchline. Uh, it's happened more than once. One time I told a, a group of teenagers at a camp, I was with Clinton Mensch uh, up at Haycock, and I told a group of teenagers at a camp what happens to Harry Potter at the end of the final movie when he walks out into the forest with Voldemort and 
I'm not going to do that this morning to you for that. Or like this one time, or maybe twice I've been up here, and uh, I let us all in on the dirty little secret uh, of what's going on during the entirety of The Sixth Sense, right? Where Bruce Willis, during the whole movie, is... Well, I'm not going to do that either. But I do feel like 1980 puts us in a completely different category, right? Uh, It's far enough back. So let's rehearse the origin story of Luke Skywalker together again. Remind ourselves. So Vader is attempting to convince Luke to join him and learn the ways of the dark side. Luke is saying, no, 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 I'm never going to join you because you killed my father. And then is when the bomb drops, right? What does Vader says? He says, Luke, come on, come on, come on. Luke, yeah, I am your father. We all know it. Crazy plot twist. That's why it's so memorable to us. It's a common household phrase now, right? You never, after that moment, view those two characters the same. Origin stories matter. It affects the rest of the stories in the Star Wars metaverse, universe, whatever it is. Uh, And I think the origin story of marriage will fundamentally alter the way that you view marriage as well. I'm going to tell you up front, as you probably noticed when you read the text with us, with Kate this morning, our culture cringes at this kind of text in the scripture. Uh, You might even feel a little bit uncomfortable, for instance, if you were sitting in here, maybe with a coworker, um, and, you know, Kate would get up here to read that, or I get up here to preach that, and you might... Imagine them thinking, wait, you believe that? That text in Ephesians 5? This book that you gather around week after week? That's weird and backwards and sexist, dude. Why do you believe that? But listen, Trinity, when it comes down to it, we shouldn't be frightened or embarrassed or bashful. We shouldn't blush at what the Bible says. We serve a loving and wise God who absolutely wants the best for us. We can hold to what he says confidently and without blushing and with knowing that the plan laid out in here will certainly produce the world's most flourishing marriages because God knows best and he loves best. At Trinity, we believe this is the living word of God. And so even when it says controversial stuff like it does this morning for us, especially controversial in our present-day culture, we go with it because we trust God. We trust his heart, it's kind, and it's wise. So without foundation laid, let's, let's move forward into the text here. Paul is transitioning the conversation into all different kinds of relationships, and specifically this week he's talking about marriage. Now, I should say, if, if you're here this morning and you're not married, there's plenty to glean from this text, even for you. So don't check out. Some of you have gladly and willingly embraced your singleness. Some of you are just begging God to bring you someone. Your heart is hurting right now. And to you, I'd say, I truly am sorry. And we would beg God right alongside with you that he would change that. But to each of you who does not find themselves married this morning, or or perhaps you're divorced, uh, there's plenty of truth and hope in here for you to find encouragement in. If you find yourself discouraged or frustrated and want to talk about that, whatever your situation in life is, right now our doors are open. My inbox is always open. It would be a joy and a privilege to sit down with you. Let's get together. And finally, I know some of you in here are probably married to unbelieving spouses today. Today I'm going to primarily be addressing Christians that are married to Christians. 
If that's not your story, please know that the Bible does speak into your story. It just doesn't speak into it here in this text, and so we're not going to be touching on much of that. But if, if you'd like to speak more about that and what that might look like in your life, uh, c- contact me or, or connect with me afterwards, and I'd love to chat with you about that. So here we are. What is the origin story of marriage? I think it's a million times more shocking than Luke Skywalker's. I think it's a life-changing, paradigm-shifting thing. I think if you're in a ho-hum marriage or if you're in a struggling marriage, the origin story of marriage has the power to reignite something really beautiful in your hearts. So what is the function of marriage? What's the point of it? Is it the tax benefits of a joint filing on April 15th? Surely there's got to be another way to get those benefits, right? Is it babies? We don't need marriage for babies. We know that. Is it commitment? Who says marriage is necessary for commitment? Why get married? Well, I'm going to try to answer that question for us today. So let's think of marriage together like, like, a, like a framed picture on a wall, okay? We're going to talk about the frame, and then we're going to talk about the picture inside the frame. The frame is this. The origin of marriage is the gospel itself. The origin of marriage is the gospel, and in the picture inside that frame, the roles in marriage reflect the gospel, So before we get to all the controversial stuff like headship and submission, I just need to build us a frame real quick, okay? So first, the frame. The origin of marriage is the gospel. So if we want to put a picture of a healthy marriage up on the walls of our lives, we're going to need a solid frame to put that picture inside of that will hold up over the course of time. A flimsy frame won't do. The picture will fall out. It will be ruined This is partly why divorce rates are so high right now and marriage rates are dipping so steeply. It's because all of those people, all of these people have either never been taught or completely forgotten about the meaning of marriage, the origin story of of marriage. So Paul frames this conversation at the end of our text down in verse 32. So look with me, if you will, at verse 32. He says, this mystery, in other words, marriage in the way that I've described it in the last few verses. So this mystery is profound. In this mystery of marriage, I say that it refers to Christ and the church. So when you hear this word mystery, don't think like Agatha Christie. Think like a revealed secret. That's what Paul means when he says mystery. It's a revealed secret. So it could just as easily read like this. Verse 32 could read like this. The once untold and now open secret of marriage is that it refers to Christ and the church. So When God created man and woman and ordained the union of marriage, he intentionally patterned marriage after the relationship between Jesus and the church. Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. So for thousands of years, since the beginning of time, marriage was a mystery waiting to be unfolded. Its origin story contained and concealed a meaning far greater than what we just see on the outside of ordinary marriages. Baked into the very first marriage between Adam and Eve was this beautiful, cosmic, redemptive reality that Jesus the groom would marry the church, his bride, and that he would redeem her from certain destruction. That's what marriage is about. So therefore, God's greatest goal in your marriage and in mine is that it would be a picture of the relationship between Christ the groom and the church the bride. So here is the mind-blowing Marriage mystery of the universe. The origin story of marriage 
is the gospel story of redemption. So marriage, in its ultimate sense, isn't even about you and your spouse. It's about the gospel that saved you. That's just the frame. Marriage's origin story should hold our marriages together, even in the dark times, the prickly times, the cold times, the difficult times. This magnificent, uh, overarching reality ought to put into perspective our marriage relationships. And why do I bring all of this up? Why do I take time to trace this thread, the origin story of marriage? Mostly because I want to demonstrate that the concept of headship and submission didn't originate in some culture in history. It didn't come from some period of history or some religious tradition. As opposed to popular opinion, maybe today in America, it wasn't created by men to dominate the world. Defined and distinct and complementing, and when I say compliment, I don't mean like I like your shirt. I mean compliment with an E and not with an I. Um, defined and distinct and complementing roles our roles complement each other, uh, are timeless because they originate in the redemptive relationships of the Trinity. Before time began, there was complementing relationships happening. So the differing roles between husband and wife were not God's plan B after things got screwed up in the garden. Headship and submission in marriage were established before sin ever warped our relationships. So that's Paul's frame. What will it look out? Look, look like, look out, <laughs> look out, ladies. What's it going to look like? Um, what's it going to look like? Let's roll out some implications here. So let's look at the picture. The roles in marriage reflect the gospel. It ro- really boils down to two basic commands that reflect the gospel relationship between Jesus and the church. It's this: wives submit to your husband like Christ submits to the church. Husbands love your wives like Christ loves the church. So let's take these one at a time. We'll tackle the most controversial one first, okay? Wives, submit to your husbands like the church submits to Christ. Maybe you're tempted to blush here, to cringe here. No need. God is good and wise, and we will unpack this the best we can in a way that honors you ladies, in a way that honors the Lord and his word too. Listen to this quote by a self-proclaimed feminist turned Christian, Ladies, I wonder if this resonates with some of you. She says this, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge when I first wrestled with these words, wives submit to your husbands. I came from an academically driven, equality-oriented, all-female high school. I was now studying in a majority male college, and I was repulsed. Wives submit to your husbands? You have got to be kidding me. I had three problems with these verses. The first was that wives should submit. I knew women were just as competent as men. If there was wisdom and asymmetrical decision-making in marriage, surely it should depend on who was more competent in the relevant area. Second problem was with the idea that wives should should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. That's taken directly from Ephesians 5. It's one thing to submit to Jesus Christ, the self-sacrificing king of the universe. It is quite another to offer that same kind of submission to a fallible, sinful man. My third problem was the idea that the husband was the head of the wife. This seemed to imply a hierarchy at odds with men and women's equal status as image bearers of God. I'm not sure, but maybe you find yourself resonating with one of those or all three of those reasons. 
Maybe submission seems a strange concept to you, especially if you are new to Christianity. I'll admit it. The Bible's view on sexuality and gender roles in marriage have been the burr in the saddle of Christianity for 2,000 years. It has led many to reject a truly resurrected Christ. It's like the princess in the pea. She's down with the whole bedding situation, except for this one little thing. I wonder if some of us feel the same way about the word of God. I could get down with this whole thing, except for the sex and gender piece. That's like the, uh. And I'll be the first to admit that the burr in your saddle, sisters, is not without warrant, at least in terms of how men have manipulated these ideas in Ephesians 5 through the years. In the centuries since Paul penned these words under the power of the Spirit, gender roles have often meant that women are forced to contort around the needs and desires of husbands while the husbands get to exert their raw dominance. I'm the head, you submit, and that's the end of it. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. Paul never says the husband's needs come first. It's quite the opposite, actually. Paul never says that women are less gifted than men. Paul never says that wives shouldn't work outside the home. Paul never says that wives should make less than their husbands. Paul never says that wives belong in the kitchen while the men kick back and relax. But if Paul doesn't mean these things, what does he mean by submit? I've got seven observations about submission. And just as a heads up, this section is a little bit longer than the men's section that we'll get to. Not because it's more important or that the women have more to do, but because it's got greater potential for misunderstanding, I think, between both genders. And I also want to say again, if today leaves you with more questions than answers, I want you to know that our next Mobilize class um, if you're visiting for the first time today, Mobilize is like our Sunday school. We're just too cool for Sunday school, so we call it something else. Um, we meet in the room behind this room weekly at 9 a.m. Normally, there are 12-week classes, and we tackle different issues in the scriptures. And so the next one that we start in a couple of weeks is going to be, uh, it's going to deal with uh, the issues of, of men and women in our different roles. So also, this fall, we'll likely be circling back to answer even more of your questions in a short sermon series uh, about, about this. So as far as I know, in the five years that I've been here, we've never actually tackled this particular topic. So some of this might be brand new concepts to some of you in here, and, and that's great. We're, we're happy to unpack the word of God verse by verse as we go. So first observation, wives, submission is what it sounds like. Submission is what it sounds like. Through the years, many have tried to sort of wriggle out of this idea uh, by attempting to redefine what Paul must mean by this idea of submit. But whatever the term means, it's pretty sweeping because the paradigm for the wife's submission to the husband is the church's submission to Jesus. That's the metaphor, the comparison. It's a sweeping submission. Of course, how convenient for the guy to say, right? Look at verse 24, though. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also, in the same kind of way, Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I saw like eight guys just pull out their phones and take a picture of that slide right there. Uh, it is what it sounds like. Um, the Greek word that is translated as submit is used 40 times in the New Testament. It is a word that refers to, that always refers to ordered relationships, especially when one party submits to another. 
Nowhere in the New Testament does the word ever get softened to mean something else. The bottom line is that women are called to do something here that men aren't called to do. And we'll find the same, same case for the men here uh, in a couple of minutes. They're called to do something that the women aren't called to do. Caveat. Listen carefully. I would never, ever want to dismiss or minimize the horrible record of abuse and depression suffered by women at the hands of men who have, in the name of godliness and obedience to this text, weaponized a text like this against their wives. Some men want power and control, and they use this text to iron fist their way to those things. They want to use God to get what they want from their wife. It's horrible. It's evil. It's wicked. If this is you in here today, husband, repent. Wives, if this is your husband, we are here for you. We will gladly and willingly step in to help. It would be a joy, not a joy. We would be glad to step in and help, help you with this. We want to. You do not need to, nor should you have to submit to that kind of sinful garbage, okay? Husbands should not weaponize a text like this. We should not overlook these historical, oppressive patterns in men. But in the same breath, I would urge us not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Dump the dirty bathwater of male overreach, but save the beautiful baby of a biblical faith, biblically faithful marriage. So submission is what it sounds like. Wives submit like the church does to Jesus. At the end of the day, wives, your calling is to bring yourself under your husband's authority in the big stuff and the little stuff. Second, Wives, submission is voluntary, not coerced. You can't tell this by looking at your English version in front of you, but that word submit there is in something called the middle voice. It's a grammatical term. And the only reason I share this nerdy fact with you this morning is that the middle voice means that submission is not to be forced on you by your husband. It's something that you willingly offer or willingly do. Husbands, you heard that, right? It is not your job to make her submit. God doesn't give you that right or that role. And just note here that Paul does not use the word obey. Wives are not called to be pushovers here. Skip down a couple of verses down into chapter 6, and you'll see that the, Paul knew how to use the word obey. He used it with reference to what children and servants are called to do. But he doesn't use the word obey when it comes to the way wives are supposed to interact with their husbands. Men. Remember that women are better at being women than you will ever be, all right? There's no call here to erase her identity or for her to be a doormat or for her to fold into your identity. She is free to flourish as an individual. Lead, but allow them to flourish in their areas of strength. So it's voluntary, but not coerced. Third, wives, submission is godlike. It is God-like. Way back at the beginning of time, when God saw Adam alone, a male without a female, he called it not good. Sometimes when we're singing together as a church, just stop singing for just a second and just listen. I do this all the time and I love it. I guess if we all did it at the same time, it would be a little awkward, but <laughs> try to pick a time that you don't think someone else is going to do it. 
And if you listen carefully, you'll hear men and women who are singing melody, and then you'll hear some who are singing harmony, melody and harmony. When we all sing the same melody line, we, melody line, we call that unison, unisong, one song, one sound. But when we pair the diverse sounds of harmony with the melody, everyone who has an ear to hear knows that something in us is touched more deeply by the more robust sound, more touched by harmony than we are by unison. So when God saw man without a woman, God made a woman and not another man. Adam's womanlessness is the first thing in the universe that God finds imperfect. So as the story progresses, God gives Adam a woman. And the first time he sees her, he says, whoa, man. And that's how women got their name, right there. (laughs) Speaking of cringe, when I told Miriam I was going to say that, she cringed terrible dad joke, she said, but they laughed at me and not with me, probably. Uh, But we do find that Adam is given responsibility over uh, over Eve. It's called headship here in Ephesians 5. The husband is the head of the wife. However, despite giving authority to the man, the woman is not described as an inferior. It is not a superior to inferior relationship. Instead, in Genesis 2.18, Eve, wives, are called helpers, suitable, suitable for man. And here's the crazy thing about this term, helper. That same word for helper is very often used to describe God himself. This is why I say that submission is God-like. There is so much dignity in your role, sisters. Ladies, if you are tempted to doubt the dignity of your role based on this text in Ephesians 5, Reflect on Jesus, the God of the universe, who said, I do nothing on my own authority, John 8. And I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me, John 6. So Jesus, who rightly possessed all glory and all authority, willingly laid it aside. Philippians 2, we find another instance of submissive help within the Godhead. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here we've got Jesus, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit in glory taking on the role, willingly, not coercively, taking on the role of a servant, shedding his divine privilege without becoming any less divine. And what was the result of Jesus' submission? The text continues. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The son takes a subordinate role, and in that movement, he shows greatness, not weakness. So sisters, your submissive, strong help can mirror the Son of God. And I think it is in this that you show your greatness and not your weakness. Kathy Keller long struggled with these ideas until she saw this Philippians 2 passage in all of its glory. She says this, and then I saw it. 
if it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to greater glory of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? The son defers to the father, taking on the subordinate role. The father accepts the gift, but then exalts the son to the highest place, each wishing to please the other, each wishing to exalt the other. So let me say that again, that second half of the quote, but let's substitute husband and wife for father and son. So the wife defers to the husband, taking on the subordinate role. The husband accepts the gift, but then exalts the wife to the highest place, each wishing to please the other, each wishing to exalt the other. Submission is not a loss of dignity. It is gloriously godlike. The model for our marriages is the gospel. And here's the one thing we know about our relationship in this great marriage, the marriage between Christ and the church. Our roles in that marriage, Christ as groom and us as the bride, our roles in that marriage are not interchangeable. Jesus sacrificially loves us and we humbly submit. There is no Jesus submitting to us. It's not interchangeable. Uh, God created marriage as a telescope to give us a glimpse of his star-sized desire for intimacy with us. Our roles in this great marriage, in other words, the roles in marriage between Christ and the church, are not interchangeable. Jesus gives himself for us, and Christians follow his lead. Ultimately, my marriage is not about me and my husband any more than Romeo and Juliet is about the actors playing the title roles. Your marriage, in the end, isn't ultimately about you and your spouse. It's about the origin story. It's about the gospel. Submission is godlike. Fourth, submission is God word. Submission is godly in that it is like God in many ways, but it is also God word in that it is executed in the direction of God. It is for God. You can look at verse 24 there. Paul calls wives to do this as to the Lord, in the direction of the Lord. So when it is toughest to submit to your husband, know that you are submitting to history's perfect groom, history's perfect husband, Jesus. He keeps all the receipts. He will care for you. Let me just say this. If the message of Jesus is true, if what we believe from this book about the resurrected Christ is true, if he really got up from the dead, then none of us come to the table with rights because he really is God. If Jesus is who he says he is, then we come to the table without rights. Male or female, black or white, young or old, if we hold to our own self-determined rights, in the end, we have to reject Jesus because he bids us come and die to ourselves completely. So perhaps this takes some of the sting out of it for you, ladies. Submission is more Godward than it is husbandward. Fifth, wives, submission is not about competency. Paul repeats the language of Ephesians 5 elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11.3. says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Was Jesus less competent because he submitted to the Father? No. Is Jesus inferior to the Father because he submits to the Father? No. To believe that would be to exit orthodoxy of Christianity. And this is the pattern that 
This right here is the pattern that wives are called to follow. You are not incompetent inferiors, sisters. You are not less dignified. This isn't even about competency at all. It's about showing the world a whisper of the ultimate marriage, the mystery of marriage, the point of marriage, the meaning of marriage, Jesus and his church. That's what the point of our marriages is even for. We as couples get the amazing privilege of imaging this to the world, Jesus and the church. Listen, I'm not even stretching the truth here a little bit. If wifely submission was about competency, I would be the wife in my marriage, okay? I'm serious. A wife's submission is about created order and not competency. Husbands, if you have any sense, you will listen to your wife's opinions. You will invite them. And you will delegate into her court the responsibilities that she excels at. Submission is a model of Christ in the church. It's not a method of prioritizing the competent one in the relationship. Trust me on that. Let's keep moving. Sixth, wives, submission is conditional. I need to say this. Wives, you are not obligated to follow a husband into sin. Quite the opposite, really. You are obligated to to follow your ultimate husband, the groom, Jesus, instead of your earthly husband. Wives, you are not obligated to endure mistreatment, be it sexual or emotional abuse. That is not the submission Jesus calls you to. I readily admit that husbands in society and the church in general have under-delivered in the way that we treat women denigrating and patronizing strong-jawed, iron-fisted attitudes have all too often infected church culture. But wives, you are not obligated to silence or relegated to keeping your thoughts or opinions to yourself. None of that is in play here. If your husband is treating you in this way, it is not the biblical model. And again, if you feel like trapped and you need help, it would be Wonderful if you would reach out to us. I keep wanting to say a joy, but it would not be a joy. Reach out. We would, we would love to help you. The call here is not to submit to an indifferent patriarchy, a guy who just props his feet up on the sofa, but rather to submit to a service-oriented, lay-your-life-down kind of love, kind of husband. So submission is conditional in that you must not follow your husband into sin and that you should not allow him to abuse you. Seventh and finally, wives, submission isn't universal. Maybe this goes without saying, I don't know, but the calling here is not to submit to all men. The calling is very narrow, just your husband. I think that speaks for itself. We'll move on. That was a lot, and I think that probably some of you women might look at all of this, all those seven things, and be like, man, it must be nice to be a man. His role is so much easier. Is it, though, is what I want to ask. Is it? I am not minimizing the difficulty of your role or the challenge of your role, wives. But a command to love you like Jesus is no walk in the park. Though, ironically, it'll probably include walks in the park. Um, Are another one of those dad jokes that I got to roll eyes at this morning. But I said submit. I'm saying it. That's not, that's a joke. I I didn't actually say that. We were hanging out with friends this weekend, and I used too many, one too many submit jokes, and wives get into the kitchen and do your stuff, and I just got in trouble this weekend. So, um, 
Ah, stick to the text. All right, here we go. I think our roles are equally challenging, which is why the Holy Spirit is just like all over the book of Ephesians. We need the Spirit to empower flourishing, loving, beautiful marriages. So let's touch on the complement to the wife's submission, which is a husband's sacrificial love. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. A few observations here, but not seven. Husbands, love till it hurts. Love till it hurts. Guys, we've been taught this all of our lives. Ladies first, right? We've always heard ladies first. Well, where did that come from? Is that just another one of those backward traditions from a bygone era? No, I don't think so. I actually think it comes right here from Ephesians 5. Husbands, we are ladies first because Jesus was church first. I think we see this idea littered throughout this whole passage. For instance, verse 25, Jesus gave himself up for the church, so we give ourselves up for our wives. So one implication of this is that we cannot display Christ's love without pain. Jesus gave himself up for the church. This speaks of death. There was nothing he withheld from us. So I wonder if there are specific ways in which you can serve your wife more fully. Ask her if there are any things that you can do that would alleviate stress or anxiety for her. Maybe another implication of this would be that you love her graciously, not according to her performance. Well, she didn't live up to this particular way that I wanted her to. I'm going to punish her with my attitude or with, my, you know, with what I withhold from her, or the work that I refuse to do in our home. Jesus loved you in spite of you. Love her like Jesus. You can do the same for her. Verse 29, Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church, so we nourish and cherish our wives. This calling should trouble you, guys. The calling is so high. Would your wife consider you to be one who nourishes her and cherishes her? So some homework. Guys, ask your wife if they have a sense to, that they are cherished by you. And ladies, if the guys don't do their homework, do it for them, all right? Invite this conversation. Verse 33, Jesus loves the church as his own body, so we love our wives as our own bodies. If you're running and you trip and begin to fall, what is your natural instinct? You stick your hands out, right, to catch yourself from falling, to protect you from the fall. In the same way, you are called to protect and care for your wife. It should be that instinctual. Just You stick your hands out. That's what we'd all do. One author says it like this, and I think she is exactly right. In the drama of marriage, the wife's needs come first. And the husband's drive to prioritize himself is cut down with the brutal acts of the gospel. Husbands, if you are in a miserable marriage, I wonder if it's because you're seeking your own pleasure and not seeking the pleasure of your wife. Loving like Jesus means giving up our lives, even unto death. And until that death is necessary, for many of us it won't be, It means dying to what you want to do in a million other smaller ways. Husbands, your love should remind your wife of Jesus' love. In what ways are you loving and serving her that would be a whisper of the crazy love that Jesus showed to us? Leaving the comfort of heaven for the pain of a cross. That's a good metric for us. Leaving comfort for pain. So in what ways are you loving and serving her that would be a whisper of that? Are there any contexts in your life 
where you leave comfort and enter into pain for the sake of your wife. If she needs water in the night, who's going to the kitchen? If the kids are up in the night, who's the first up to the bedroom? If the dog pukes, who's on their knees to clean it up? Husbands, love till it hurts, and then keep loving the way that Jesus has loved you. The longer life goes on, husbands, our wives should feel like they are married to another man, Jesus. They should feel like they are married to the most loving man, sacrificial man in all of history. And ladies, I truly believe that if your husbands are increasingly exemplifying this, it should uh, take the sting out of submission and make it a joy. Husbands, the call here under number two is to care for your wife's short-term happiness. But Paul takes it a step further here. Husbands, love toward the end. Love toward the end. God has called men to lead and love sacrificially with a particular end game. Look down at your text with me. We're wrapping up, I promise. Uh, Look at verses 27 and 28. Jesus loves and gives himself for the church, verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives. Men, the aim, the target, the goal of your sacrificial love is to prepare your wife to meet Jesus. Husbands, you are called to care for both your wife's short-term happiness and her long-term holiness. It's a high calling. You're called to do both. So just as Jesus came to help the church prepare to meet God, so husbands are called to help their wives prepare to meet God. If you are to love your wife like Jesus, husbands, you must concern yourself with your wife's holiness, with her sanctification, with her becoming more like Jesus. The most loving thing you can do is lead her to another man, the man Christ Jesus. You want her closer to and more like him. So pray that she would be hungry for the word. Make sure she's here week after week after week to sit under the word and to sing it and to pray it. Make sure she has a time and space in her life to be in the word and enjoy it. Make sure that she sees you doing this and bring her along with you. And if she's doing this and you aren't, get your act together. This is an important responsibility that God has given to you. It is your job to wash her with the water of the word. Not her job to wash you with it. Take your responsibility seriously here, brothers. And wives, if you see your husband's trying to do this, making an effort, don't criticize it. Encourage it. Build him up in this. Third, it's the last thing under husbands. Ladies, you have seven. Guys only have three. Uh, Husbands, love her like your own body. Look at verse 28. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So in the metaphor here, the husband is the head head and the wife is the body. And obviously these are not disconnected entities, right? They're connected. Yes, it is my head that tells my body what to do. But ideally, my head is telling my body to do things that won't endanger it. And More than that, hopefully my head is putting my body in position to do things that will cause it to flourish. In the same way, guys, as the head, we are to direct our wives toward things that will cause them joy and cause them to flourish. Husbands, wives, 
You know, earlier we talked a little bit about oppressive husbands, but I wonder if some of us in here are guilty of actually of the opposite, of not being oppressive, but being passive husbands. I wonder if it kind of looks like you're in a headless marriage with no direction, no direction toward eternity, no orientation toward the word of God. Be the head, husbands, and lead your body, your wife, towards short-term happiness and long-term holiness. We're to be the kind of men that it would be easy to submit to because all the things that the head is asking the body to do are the things that the body knows and embraces as good for flourishing. What kind of head are you being? Husbands, give yourselves to knowing Jesus and to caring for your wife. Wives, follow his lead. So in conclusion, a couple of things to both of you, okay? Husbands and wives, focus on Jesus, not fixing the marriage. If we hyper-focus on fixing all the the little things that are wrong with our marriage, rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the whole thing because we will be missing out on the origin story, peace. A poor marriage isn't really a marriage problem. It's a faith problem. It's It's a gaze problem. Where are we looking? It's when our eyes have wandered from the origin story. Second, husbands and wives, this will look different for all of us. The Bible gives almost no details about how this will look in specifics. By and large, the scripture does not give us lists of things that men and women must or must not do in the context of marriage. My sacrificial love for Miriam is going to look different than yours for your wife. And Miriam's submission is going to look a little bit different than yours to your husband's. That's why I've kind of hesitated to be super detailed in application this morning because there are just a bajillion ways to live out the reality of this text. And it will look different for each of us. But I would encourage you, take some time this afternoon to talk about and write down how this will look for y'all. Okay? Do the homework. Third, Husbands and wives, God's plan for your marriage is mutual fulfillment. It's not one getting more fulfillment than the other. Tim Keller says this, The Christian teaching of marriage does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. Fourth, husbands and wives, your marriage is all about the ultimate honeymoon. How can we know with certainty this morning that God's plan is actually good? That all this order is worth it and wise because of how the ultimate wedding in history culminates. You need to rehearse that your marriage, as amazing as I hope it is, as amazing as I hope it is, is only a shadow of our future marriage made in heaven. When we will all be united with Christ at that glorious wedding banquet, we'll all sit around this big gigantic table and we'll celebrate our earthly marriages, but mostly what we'll celebrate is history's greatest marriage. Jesus' marriage to his bride. He redeemed us for his glory. We will all be united to Christ at that most glorious wedding banquet to enjoy a never-ending honeymoon in the new creation and experience marital bliss with Jesus forever. If your marriage is great this morning, just remember, it only gets better. If your marriage stinks this morning, remember it will culminate and terminate in joy. And let me urge you, As sure as Jesus will never divorce his groom, it's us, neither should you. Stay together. Get help. It is worth it because your long-suffering with one another is a picture of God's long-suffering toward us. And I know that some of us in here this morning are divorced 
or maybe in the middle of divorce proceedings, and some of that has been out of your control, and even has been somewhat under your control. There's forgiveness and grace and mercy. But in so much as it lies within you, stay in it. Our marriages, because our marriages are about that big marriage. Your marriage is not a battlefield. Your marriage is a little snapshot of the ultimate marriage. Your marriage isn't a battle, but a victory parade, demonstrating God's power to keep us together under Christ. Our happy marriage to each other should whisper of our happy marriage to Christ. That wedding is the goal of history, and it's the goal of your marriage. Pray with me. Wait before we pray. I meant to give this out earlier. Um, let's, let's put some parameters on this. I have a book right here called Is the Bible Good for Women? I wanted to give it out today. If you have been a Christian for less than five years, or if this is the first time you ever heard from the Bible that wives ought to submit to their husbands, um, and you're wrestling with this, I have a book uh, right here by a woman named Wendy Alsup. Is the Bible good for women? Let me encourage you to just grab this. I'm going to leave it up here. Uh, you may be embarrassed to come grab it. Don't be embarrassed, okay? Um, if we need to buy more copies because there's more interest in that, uh, flag me down and we can get you some more copies for that. Hope it's a blessing to you. It's some really helpful stuff in there for me. All right, uh, I'm going to pray. Communion servers can come up and the band can come up as well. Uh, God, thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray that you'd help us submit to it. We, as your bride, collectively want to submit to you in all things because we know you have our best interest at heart. We trust you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.